are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me here on a Thursday afternoon. At least that's what time it is here on the West Coast of the United States, where I'm speaking to you from. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening to, on whatever platform you're on, we're broadcasting this now on YouTube Live, Facebook Live, and also we never want to forget our TWR360 audience. TWR is that great ministry, Trans World Radio, that's been doing an amazing work spreading God's Word all over the world in difficult-to-reach places by shortwave radio for decades and decades. But their online presence is TWR360, and they have a wonderful work. We're very grateful for our partnership with them. What we do on Thursday afternoons is we get together, and I begin with a lead question. Today, we're going to deal with a question that came from Ashley via Facebook. Uh, We deal with a lead question first, and then we open it up for whatever questions that you have. I like to give this caveat to this uh, explanation before I begin anything. Friends, I don't pretend for a moment that I know everything about the Bible, that I can answer all your questions about the Bible or the Christian life. I I just don't live with that illusion at all. Uh, However, I have been a pastor uh, for many years. I do have a fair amount of ministry experience, and I have written a commentary on the entire Bible that some people find helpful. And uh, because of that, sometimes I can answer questions. And if I can be a help to you in this program, I'm happy to do it. So with that, uh, I'm going to get into our lead question today. And as I said before, our lead question today comes from Ashley via Facebook. And uh, this is her question. Watching a video of yours on YouTube, Do you think the Holy Spirit only indwelt some believers and not all believers in the Old Testament? If so, how could anyone live a holy life without the Spirit indwelling them? I agree that the anointing of the Spirit for service was only for some in the Old Testament. I just think that the Spirit was still in believers once he regenerated them. What do you think? Actually, I think that's a great question. We're talking about the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit with people before the finished work of Jesus Christ, before the establishment of the New Covenant, and what it was like after the establishment of the New Covenant, after what Jesus did on the cross. So let me give you a summary, and then we'll talk about some scriptural passages that deal with this. First of all, I think that under the Old Covenant, believers were definitely saved not by their works and not by their genetic connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Believers under the old covenant were saved by their faith connection to God and his promised Messiah who would bring a perfect sacrifice. That's the first thing I'd like to point out. Secondly, I think that under the old covenant, those saved believers were not regenerated in the same way that we are under the new covenant. I I can't tell you exactly what the difference is, but the Bible speaks about a work under the new covenant of regeneration that is distinctly different from that which was available under the old covenant. Third, I think that under the old covenant, those saved believers 
did not have the same resources for holy living that we have under the new covenant. I can't explain fully what resources they may have had. I can't say what kind of power or operation of the spirit or whatever, but I would just say this. There's a clear distinction between the resources for holy living that God promised as part of the new covenant and everything that was before or prior to the new covenant. And then fourth, I think that under the old covenant, those saved believers did not have the same filling of the Holy Spirit that we have under the new covenant. Now, let me kind of go back and give some explanation of this and just base it on a few points. I I, want to establish that Jesus put into effect the new covenant with his death, with his sacrifice on the cross. We see this in a passage just as Luke chapter 22, verse 20, where Jesus said, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Those are dramatic words from our Savior there. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. With my blood, with my life poured out upon the cross, and it would not be more than 24 hours from the time that Jesus spoke those words, the new covenant would be established. Now, What is the new covenant? Well, it's a subject I love to talk about, so I have to restrain myself and just deal with this somewhat lightly. But the new covenant is explained in many Old Testament passages. And one thing that I am quite insistent upon, because I think the scriptures are insistent upon it, is the idea that the new covenant was new, that that there was something new, many new aspects to God's dealing with man under the new covenant that were not present, that did not exist under any prior covenant. And part of those promises, part of the promises of the new covenant are the promises that there would be a new work of the Holy Spirit in dwelling the people of God. This is a very important aspect of the promise. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, God said, Then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now, I don't know if you noticed where it says there in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, that God promised to give uh, his people under the new covenant this new spirit. The translators of the new King King James Version did not capitalize spirit they're kind of indicating that this is probably not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but I don't see why not. Certainly, the new spirit given to us is the Holy Spirit under the new covenant. It, here's an even clearer passage. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 26, God promised this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now here we find something remarkable, Ashley. We find that not only did God promise to put his spirit within people as part of the new covenant, we understand that plainly, but we also see that God is promising 
to give resources for holy living that were not present prior to the new covenant. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. There are, and I I just think this is the best way to describe it. There are resources given to the believer under the new covenant for holy living that were not given to people prior to the new covenant. Now, it's up to the believer under the new covenant whether or not they want to avail themselves, whether or not we want to take advantage of those resources, but they are given to them in Jesus Christ. Now, this outpouring of the Spirit among all believers is specifically noted as being fulfilled in the new covenant, not as being a part of previous covenants. I'm going to read to you here from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, but I want you to remember this before I show you this passage, that this passage is specifically quoted by the apostle Peter on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, as describing what God was doing in the new covenant. Joel chapter 2, beginning here at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, look, I want to make it very clear that the Old Testament has a rich record of the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was not poured out on all flesh under the Old Covenant. Instead, certain men were filled with the Spirit at certain times and only for certain duties. I would say that it was rather selective. So here's a quick list. I mean, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list, but here's a quick list of some people in the Old Testament who are filled or who were filled with the Spirit of God. Well, Joseph was filled with the Spirit of God. You see that in Genesis chapter 41. The craftsmen who built the tabernacle were filled with the Spirit of God. That's in Exodus chapter 31. Joshua was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. That's in Numbers chapter 27. The judge Othniel was filled with the Spirit of God. That's in Judges chapter 3. The judge Gideon was filled with the Spirit of God. That's in Judges 6. The judge Jephthah was filled with the Spirit of God. That's in Judges 11. The judge Samson was filled with the Spirit of God. That's mentioned at least four times in Judges 13, 14, and 15. David was filled, or excuse me, Saul was filled with the Spirit of God. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And David was filled with the Spirit of God. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So, When Joel looks forward to the glorious new covenant, he's looking forward to a time when the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh, not just a few select leaders, not just a few prophets, not just a few people to be uh, uniquely used in God's plan, but upon all flesh. It's as if he's saying, why, even your sons and daughters, even your old men, and even your young men would be filled with the Spirit of God. It's for every believer. Now, this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 
When the disciples gathered in the upper room waiting in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would come. And when the outpouring of the Spirit came, the 120 followers of Jesus were all filled with the Spirit and began to praise God in other tongues. You know, I I try to imagine what it would have been like to be a spectator at that amazing event described in Acts chapter 2. If you were a Jew present there on the Temple Mount, I believe that's where it all happened, uh, listening to Peter preach and seeing the response, you, you would scoff at the idea of 121 followers of a crucified man being filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you would think back to your Old Testament and you would say, listen, those 120 people that I hear and claim to be filled with the Spirit— They're not kings. They're not prophets. They're not priests. God only pours out his spirit on special people for special duties. These are common people. God doesn't pour out his spirit on them. But you see, under the new covenant, he does. Peter used the prophecy of Joel to show them that things are different now, just as God said they would be. Now, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all who believe and receive and enter in to this new covenant relationship with God, even the common folk like you and I. You see, now God offers a new covenant relationship. And part of the new covenant is the outpouring of the Spirit for all who receive in faith. So again, now that's part of the new covenant. The purpose of this like uh, lead question isn't to discuss all the aspects of the new covenant, which I love to talk about. It's really to talk about just some of them. So again, Ashley asked, did the Holy Spirit only indwell some believers and not all believers in the Old Testament? That's true. How could anyone live a holy life without the Holy Spirit indwelling them? We don't exactly know how, but we know they had less resources for holy living than we do under the new covenant. And she rightly recognizes that the Spirit was given for some people under service. But again, I would say, Ashley, that people weren't regenerated, were not born again in a new covenant sense until the completed work of Jesus on the cross. Now, this explanation that I've given you kind of is contrary to some in our Christian family who emphasize what they call covenant theology. Now, listen, I'm very big on the idea of the covenants in the Bible. I think it's an outstanding way to understand the flow of God's plan of the ages as it's explained in the scriptures. But what in the Reformed world is termed covenant theology, uh, I, don't, I don't buy it. I, I think it really is covenant confusion rather than covenant clarity. And they, at least most of them, there's not universal agreement among those who buy into these ideas of covenant theology as is respect in most of the Reformed world. They blur the distinction, I believe, between the old covenant and, excuse me, between the new covenant and what came before it. And they would say that people would be filled with the Spirit and born again just as much prior to the finished work of Jesus than before. I I would disagree with my brothers and sisters on that point. I, I think that there's something, as I said before, and I don't mean this flippantly, there's something new about the new covenant. After all, that's what we call it, 
That's what the scriptures call it, the new covenant. And it was truly new in many ways. Okay, well, Ashley, I hope that's helpful for you. I'm so pleased that you could join us today with our live stream. Um, Hope everything is going out okay with our live stream today. I know we've been having some troubles in the past, which distresses me to no end. I want you to know that we've done everything we could to try to fix some of those problems. And uh, I just want to say welcome to everybody who's been able to join us. And now I'm going to take a look at my screen and take a look at some of the questions that are coming in on the live chat. You put them in on the comments or live chat or whatever it is you want to call it. And then our moderator, Devin, forwards them to me. So here's the first question uh, from uh, Balboa over YouTube. Says, how were the Old Testament believers saved under the Mosaic law? Well, Balboa, that's a great question. I'm very happy for this question because it relates to the subject that I'm speaking of. They, They were saved, please, by faith. Everybody who's ever been justified before God has been justified by faith. You see, we cannot keep God's law, God's commands, well enough, perfectly enough to attain salvation by works. That's very plain. But by faith. Now, we, under the new covenant, we have our faith centered looking back looking back to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We preach Christ and him crucified looking back under the old covenant. And I would even include those who are shown to be believers in the Old Testament outside the family of Israel. We're saved by faith, trusting in what God would do in providing a perfect sacrifice in and through the work of the Messiah. And look, we got to be very straightforward. We don't know to what extent they understood this, but I'll just give you an example. When a Israelite brought forth an animal to the tabernacle or later the temple for sacrifice, when they laid their hands upon the head of that animal and confessed their sins, and when that animal was sacrificed, they understood here is an innocent suffering for the guilty. The animal was innocent. I'm guilty. That animal is suffering for me. And one day God will offer a perfect sacrifice for our sins. I think that's simply it. Their faith in God and in that concept of God providing salvation through a substitutionary sacrifice, this this was the basis of their salvation. So, Old Testament believers could be saved under the Mosaic Law, but they were not saved by keeping the law. They were not saved by their genetic connection to Abraham. They were saved by, as it says, of Abraham, he believed God and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. That's how everybody who's ever been saved. Again, their faith was looking forward to what the Messiah would do. Our faith is looking back to what the Messiah has done. Hope that's helpful for you there, Baboa. And again, that's a great question to ask. Next question comes over YouTube from uh, PKWJTW. Maybe that's initials. I'm just going to guess. Ask this question. Mary and Joseph lived in a house by the time the wise men arrived. Is that correct? 
do you think they had planned on moving there when they had just went for the census? Well, PKWJTW, um, look, I just want to be very upfront about this. We're going to speculate a little bit, right? We don't exactly know. We just want to speculate consistently with what the scriptures do tell us. And because Mary and Joseph were in a house, uh, doesn't it say that in uh, Matthew with the visit of the wise men uh, unto Jesus, that they came to their house And because Herod commanded the death of all the children, was it two or three years uh, and below? We have reason to believe that Jesus was well past the newborn stage when the wise men actually arrived, which wouldn't be unusual if they would have left the day after they saw that sign in the sky. It would have taken them weeks, maybe even a few months to get to Bethlehem. Uh, perhaps even longer, if it took them longer time to plan the whole move and everything. So what I'm just trying to say is, yes, it's entirely reasonable to assume that, number one, uh, Mary and Joseph lived in a house, because that's what the scripture says, it's not an assumption, that Jesus was a year, two years, six months old, something like that. I mean, Herod commanded the death of, I forget if it was two or three years of all the children, but he might have given a margin just for uh, the sake of safety in his mind. I think it's a fair assumption, it is an assumption, that Mary and Joseph planned on settling down there in Bethlehem. Remember, Joseph had family there. And being a carpenter, a builder, more correctly, he had a transferable occupation. It's not crazy to me that they said, uh, we're not going back to Nazareth. There's a lot of gossip about us in Nazareth. Let's stay right here in Bethlehem. And, and in Bethlehem, we're with Joseph's family. In Bethlehem, we're close to Jerusalem, because please remember, Bethlehem's very close to Jerusalem. If the Messiah is going to grow up, shouldn't he grow us kind of close to the temple, close to the center of Judaism? But friends, God had other plans. And because of Herod's despicable massacre of the innocents, Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus had to flee to Egypt where they stayed for some time. And when they returned, they felt it was too dangerous to go back to Bethlehem and Judea. So they went north, guided by the Holy Spirit, into Galilee, where they settled at Nazareth. Because in the plan of God the Father, by the leading of God the Holy Spirit, Uh, Under the submission of God the Son, God determined that the Messiah would grow up in a nowhere place like Nazareth. And that's how God ordained it. That's how God chose it to happen. So, um, I hope that answers that question for you. Uh, I I think that they intended just to settle down there, but then they had to move to Egypt. They didn't want to stay in Egypt Maybe they had hoped to come back to Bethlehem, but the Holy Spirit guided them to go to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus did most of his growing up. Next question comes from Barry over our YouTube audience. Great, Barry. Glad you could join us. Barry asks, could you comment on Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6? What constitutes falling away in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6? 
Well, Barry, that is a great question here. Uh, let's just take a look at that verse. And um, I would want to take a look at the passage here in my commentary. But first, let's just read the verse here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. What constitutes falling away? Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6 says, If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify themselves for themselves, the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. Barry, um, first, I'm just going to give you a general answer here, and then we're going to point you to my commentary in just a moment. But Barry, here's the, the big picture. Hebrews was written to believers in the first century coming forth from a Jewish or Hebrew background, but they were believers who were tempted and maybe even one might say in the process of pulling back from their faith in Jesus Christ because of pressure, because of persecution. They had not yet uh, been persecuted uh, violently unto blood, but it was on the horizon and they were feeling the heat. And because of that, they wanted to retreat away from those things that were distinctively Christian, while at the same time maybe holding on to some of the things that Christianity and Judaism held in common. The writer of the Hebrews says, you can't pull back from the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially his work on the cross. Now, if we think about that in verse 6, where it talks about it being impossible to renew people to repentance if they fall away. Friends, the only way I can square that with the rest of the scriptures is to say that the people who can't repent are the people who don't want to repent. The people who don't want to repent in Jesus. Maybe they wanted to repent under some uh, Old Testament, Old Covenant ceremonies or rituals, but they didn't want to repent under Jesus. And that means they could not be saved. Barry, I really think that it's a pointed and effective way, the writer of the Hebrews saying there in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, that there's no other way to be saved except in Jesus. The rituals of rabbinic Judaism would not bring salvation. It had to be a trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Christ and him crucified for the sins of his people. That's where salvation was. And if they were to withdraw from that, there was no possibility for them to be saved. So in this sense, your pointed question is, what constitutes falling away? It's turning your back. It's putting distance. It's pushing away your trust, your faith in who Jesus is and what he did to save you, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection. Now, Barry, let me continue on just with this, just to show you something. I want to show you and the rest of our, you know, uh, group here, uh, how you can look up these things on my Bible commentary. Now, lots of people use my Bible commentary on Blue Letter Bible. I thank the Lord for that. Those are tremendous people there at Blue Letter Bible. Uh, Some people use the Bible commentary on uh, the Enduring Word app that you can easily use on your phone. But most people who use my commentary use it on our website, EnduringWord.com. And uh, simply said, this is what that website looks like. Uh, EnduringWord.com right there. Looks like that. And the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, you can see, you scroll down on the front page, 
and you just go to where it prescribes uh, the commentary on Hebrews. You click there, and then you go up and you find where it says uh, Hebrews chapter 6, and then you can scroll down and see where I deal specifically with verse 6 and give a greater explanation of it. And I think that greater explanation would be good for you or for any of our viewers who are interested in that particular question. So, just a quick look on how you can use the commentary there at EnduringWord.com. All right, uh, next question comes from our YouTube viewer, PPJ. How can you spot a false teacher what to look for? Wow. Um, The easy answer to your question, PPJ, is to simply compare what that teacher teaches with the Word of God, but the Word of God rightly divided. Um, Let let me give you an example. I, I believe that the Bible speaks of an ecological concern that God's people should have. We should care about the earth. We should care about exercising proper dominion over the creation as God has commanded us. This world is given to men and women, to Adam and Eve and all their descendants, to have dominion over. And that means that we should wisely and properly and never wastefully use the resources of this earth. Now, the Bible teaches that. But if somebody were to advance the idea that this is the center of God's plan, that this is the most important thing in the Bible and in God's plan, I'd say, well, listen, you're teaching something that's in the Bible for certain, but you're giving it far too much weight than it deserves. That's part of the concept that Paul referred to in one of his letters to Timothy when he spoke of rightly dividing the word of truth, just giving proper proportion. And I'm not talking about things that are a little bit out of proportion. I'm talking about things that are way out of proportion. We should be able to mark that and say, well, this person is teaching an idea that's in the Bible, but they're not teaching it the way that the Bible presents it in its entirety. So someone who teaches against the Bible, people who teach in a proportion that's not found in the Bible, and false teachers also, according to the New Testament, can be those who teach in a way that is only for their own benefit and advancement. Now, what this means is that we have to know the scriptures and we have to trust the scriptures. So, when, (laughs) if somebody isn't referring much to the Bible in their preaching and teaching, that should be a red light for you right there. Maybe they're a false teacher. That's number one. But number two, Even when they do refer to the Bible, are they quoting it in context? Are they getting strange and crazy ideas? Are they coming up with things that nobody else has discovered in the Bible and now they're here to reveal it to you? Are they teaching things that end up with a bad fruit, a bad effect in the practical lives of many? These are things that are indications of someone being a false teacher. But again, as I would stress you, PPJ, it requires that we know the Word of God, that we dig into the Word, 
And again, I, I just referenced a few moments ago my Bible commentary. Look, if my commentary on the Bible can help a few people understand the Word of God better, I'm very happy for that. If it can keep a few people from uh, being sucked in or deceived by a false teacher, I'm very excited about that. So uh, those are a few things I would say right off, PPJ, ways that we can understand false teachers. Okay, next question comes from Debbie over our Facebook audience. Debbie asks this. Is being redeemed an ongoing action in the Christian life? I know our bodies will be redeemed. We die, but are we perpetually being redeemed? Ah, you know, Debbie, the answer to your question really kind of depends on how fine we want to make these distinctions. Let me see if I can explain to you what I mean by that. There is at least one sense in which our redemption was accomplished once and for all by what Jesus did at the cross. Because the essential idea of our being redeemed is that we are bought out from our slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil— And now we are put into our service, our slavery, if you will, unto God. We're bought. One idea behind that biblical word that we translate redeemed is to buy out of the slave market. Okay, so that's something that's basically a one and done. It happens at one time. But at the same time, and I I just want to acknowledge that we're dealing with some tensions. We're dealing with some um, complex ideas in the scriptures. There's a sense in which our salvation is already accomplished. But Debbie, I also want you to know, as I think you're pointing out in your question, there's also a sense in uh, the scriptures in which our salvation, or at least the fullness of our salvation, still awaits. The scriptures speak that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. All three of those are true at the same time. And I think that the only error comes is in denying any one of those three. Yes, I believe that I have been saved, but I also believe that it's a process going on with me one day, and I believe that it'll be perfected uh, one day in the resurrection. I I do believe that I will be perfected, but that it doesn't take away from the idea that I already am saved. So those three concepts run parallel in the Christian life. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And if we want to use redemption in a little bit broader sense, which sometimes the scriptures do, then we understand that there is a sense in which we are waiting for our redemption. We are certainly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That happens in the resurrection. When we pass from this life to the next. And so we wait for that, and it's glorious uh, when it arrives. So, Debbie, I hope that's helpful for you. I'm going to move on to the next question that we have that comes from Tunal Banan, uh, our Swedish Subway viewer, who says, I know Jesus says that we shouldn't be afraid, but we still all have fears. How should we deal with them? Well, Tunal Banan, uh, I think that it's important to understand 
that our fears, our anxieties are things that we need to continually bring before God. So if I'm anxious today about something, I need to bring it to God. I need to lay it before his throne. I need to cast my cares upon him because he cares for me. These are things that I'm called to do um, as a believer in Jesus Christ as part of the new covenant. Now, if I do that, and if I do that genuinely here this afternoon, and then tonight or tomorrow morning, uh, anxieties come back upon me, it doesn't mean that it wasn't real when I did it before. It just means that it's the kind of thing I need to do repeatedly, again and again and again. So, uh, this is the concern that we need to have, and just to continually bring these things before the Lord. And if there's one other thing that I could suggest, I would suggest simply this, that as we continually cast our cares upon the Lord, we come to him with that sense of we want to not only pray about these things, but use scripture memorization to fill our mind, to fill our heart with this knowledge of God's word. I think that's going to be of significant benefit as well. I hope that's helpful for you. And uh, let me go on uh, to Bob. YouTube is asking uh, this question, Bob, uh, who is the bobblehead on your shelf today? Well, Bob, that is the famous uh, Dodger, Los Angeles Dodger baseball pitcher. It's a baseball club uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax, to my knowledge, uh, is not a believer. Uh, he's of Jewish heritage. Uh, but you know what? Uh, he's a wonderful um, uh, man and uh, was a very skilled baseball pitcher. And I, I, I'll just bring this up briefly. Um, just to mention that if I seem a little distracted, a little off today, uh, it's because my father passed away, passed to heaven just this last uh, Monday. Uh, my father, Richard Guzik, was a believer and he graduated to glory. His, his redemption is completely fulfilled now. And I just wanted to put up that Sandy Koufax uh, baseball pitcher bobblehead. Uh, just in a little private remembrance of my father. My father was a big baseball fan, and we could always talk about baseball. Uh, especially we could talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers. And my father was my um, youth baseball coach, Little League coach for many years, and very involved with us in that part of our life, as well as many other things. So I just thought uh, how nice it would be to put that up there. And um, thank you for your thoughts and prayers. Our family's doing well. Uh, obviously, it weighs heavily on us. Uh, there's a sense of sadness that we think about, uh, but God is with us even in this as well. So let me continue on uh, to a YouTube question from SNL. It says this, I'm struggling with shame after I open up about my faith to my unbelieving friends. How can we overcome these feelings? As a new believer, almost 100% of my friends are into new age. 
Well, SNL, uh, first of all, the last thing in the world I want to do is condemn you. There is no accounting for the shame, the embarrassment we sometimes feel for being believers. And I say there's no accounting for it because if we think about it logically, there is zero reason for us to be embarrassed about Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? Embarrassed about Jesus? How could we ever be? Jesus is the most amazing, the most significant person who has ever walked this earth. And if your New Age friends thought about it for half a moment, they would say the same thing. So listen, here's the simple point. Steer it as much as you can to simply talking about Jesus. And if you, you know, can express it in some way, hey, uh, if I'm to be rejected or um, uh, condemned for uh, being a follower of this man, Jesus Christ, as he's explained to us in the Bible, then I'll take that all day long because there's nothing to be embarrassed about regarding Jesus. Now, what you're feeling is very common. I've felt it myself. SNL. So don't feel condemned. Just um, ask God to help you deal with this. Ask God to give you strength and maybe a wise word. What you're doing, SNL, is infinitely better than retreating back into a shell and not talking about Jesus in any way. Keep the focus on Jesus and you can weather this storm. And again, God bless you for what you're doing. Next question comes from Loves to Hug It Out of our YouTube audience asks this, can Gentile believers claim the promises coming from books like Hosea or is it only for Israel? Well, Loves to Hug It Out, very good question. And I can't give you an absolute answer. I mean, I guess the only answer I could give is sometimes. Because sometimes the, the promises we see in the prophets in the Old Testament, sometimes those promises are made to the people of God in general, and it speaks to Israel as the people of God. But then there's other promises that are made for national Israel specifically. And so we got to take a look at context. We got to understand the passage and see, is this a passage that's speaking to national Israel in general? Or is it a, excuse me, national Israel specifically, or is it a passage that speaks to the people of God in general? Uh, so that's what I would, would emphasize uh, on that aspect. Now, I do also want to give room for something. And it's the simple idea that I believe that there are certain times, there are certain places where the Spirit of God will make a promise alive to us, even though it was not specifically given to us. And again, I think that's an important concept. This is obviously an idea, a concept that can be abused, but having experienced it in my own life and knowing many, many others for whom they've had a similar experience, I just see that sometimes the Holy Spirit 
will make a promise alive. And I don't know how to explain it other than to say, it's almost like they're in flashing lights as we take a look at this promise. Go, the Holy Spirit saying, that's for you. Look, I'm not saying that that sense is infallible. It's definitely possible that a believer could get that wrong. They could think a promise was for them, even think that the Holy Spirit saying that the promise for them, but it was not actually. However, however, there is this dynamic, this, uh, this aspect where the Holy Spirit will take a verse and make it alive to us. I like kind of the old King James way of speaking that will quicken that verse to us and say, this is for you. So, uh, loves to hug it out. I would say we first know by general context, then we secondly must allow for this idea of the Holy Spirit making something alive to us. It was not originally written to us, but the Spirit makes it alive to our heart. Next question comes from our Facebook viewer, Mariel. Welcome, Mariel. I'm glad you could join us. Asks, if the gospel is so complex and extensive, how can we share it with people in a few minutes when we don't have much time? Mariel, let me just simply put it to you this way. It is true that the gospel is extensive. I don't know if I'd say it's complex, but it is extensive. There's no limit to understanding the depths and the nuance and the effects and the meanings and the ramifications of what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the one aspect of it. But Marielle, let me tell you, at its core, the gospel is very simple. At its core, the gospel is this. It's the good news of what God has done to save us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did in his death on the cross and resurrection to new life. I'll say it again. The good news, the gospel is the good news of what God has done to save us, to rescue those who put their trust in him, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did in dying on the cross and raising again to new life. That's the core of the gospel. That's what a person needs to believe, needs to put their trust in, in order to pass from death to life. So, Mariel, that aspect isn't complicated. That aspect can be grasped. And so, I would just put a focus upon that. Uh, put a focus on that core of the gospel. Now, you know, I can get into complexities and nuance from the Bible all day long, and I love to do it. But the core of what God has done to rescue us in Jesus Christ, that's not so complicated. We can grab a hold of it. Next question comes from Florin, uh, from our YouTube audience. Florin asks, can you tell me if Jonah was filled with the Holy Spirit all time or just sometime? When? Well, huh, that's interesting. Jonah is specifically said to be a prophet, so I would say that in his work as a prophet, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jonah was used by God to bring a remarkable revival to the city of Nineveh which was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. 
which was a cruel and brutal and dictatorial empire. So, um, yeah, I think that he couldn't be used of God to bring such a mighty revival unless he was filled with the Spirit. But I don't, you know, you could ask whether or not he was filled with the Spirit when he ran away from God and got on a ship bound for uh, Tarshish. But he certainly wasn't walking in the Spirit when he did that. So, again, um, he was a prophet. God used him mightily to bring forth an amazing revival. I don't have any problem pointing at the fact that he was filled with the Spirit. Uh, Our YouTube viewer, Roswell Baptist Church, asks, During Bible study, someone asks, Can we be sure we will go to heaven when we die, or will we know it when we face God? Well, Roswell, we certainly will know it when we face God, that's for sure. But I do think that we can know ahead of time. It's in Romans, isn't it? Where it says that the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. I I believe that... If a person is genuinely a believer, that the Holy Spirit testifies to their spirit that they are in God's family, that they are children of God. It it doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as false assurance, that someone could think they have this but actually be wrong. I, I think there would be indications of that, though. And if you take a look at books like 1 John, in 1 John, He gives many ways to test the idea that we are walking in God's light, that we have passed from death to life. So, based on these ideas, the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. Uh, The assurances that 1 John gives us, just the general fact that we are reliant upon the fact that our salvation is rooted in who Jesus is and what he did for us, not on who we are, what we've done for ourselves, God forbid. Our salvation being rooted in who Jesus is and what he did for us, that brings us assurance of salvation because Jesus can never fail. So yes, uh, dear Roswell Baptist Church, I would say it is definitely possible for someone to know the... um, the status of their own salvation. Though, just like anything, it can only be known imperfectly, but I think um, decisively it can be known. Next question comes from Taylor, a YouTube viewer. Taylor asks, do people that reject Jesus go to a holding place called hell when they die? Okay, Taylor, let me give you my understanding of this conception. Those who reject Jesus Christ, they go to a place that is sometimes called in the scriptures, Hades. It's a place where people await the final judgment. I think there was a difference in the composition of Hades before Jesus finished his work on the cross and after Jesus finished his work on the cross, but we're just speaking about the nature, the composition of Hades after Jesus Uh, finished his work on the cross. Those who die rejecting Jesus Christ, by the way, look, 
if someone rejects Jesus, they don't want heaven. If there's anything characteristic of heaven, it's Jesus. Jesus is all over heaven, to use a phrase. And I just want you to know that if a person rejects Jesus, they don't want heaven. Now, I'm not saying that they want hell or Hades, but they don't want heaven. And I think part of what we understand about heaven is that God won't force people there who don't want to go there. So, person rejects Jesus. When they die, they go to Hades, which is sort of the waiting area. It is a place of torment. Jesus described it so in a story that he told in Luke chapter 17. There they await the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, people are sentenced to, those people who were in Hades, are sentenced to the lake of fire, which is also called in the Hebrew Gehenna, which we would commonly call hell. So that's the distinction I would make. Hades is an immediate place where the dead outside of Jesus Christ go. And then uh, at the great white throne judgment, those in Hades are judged and they spend the rest of eternity to in um, the lake of fire, Gehenna. And I think that's how the scriptures bring it forth. Um, these are truths from the scriptures that on the one hand are terrifying. How can we say there anything less than that? But in the end, they bring God glory and they honor his righteousness. So I, I believe that's how the scriptures explain it. Uh, YouTube, Jennifer asks this question. And Jennifer, thank you for your uh, greeting, your condolences there. Jennifer asks, um, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus asks Peter to drop nets to catch fish. In the New King James, he drops a net. In the ESV, NL, NIV, NLT, it says that Peter dropped nets. Which do you think is the best translation on this verse? Ooh. Uh, Jennifer, okay. The New King James, which is the translation I mostly use, is different from other modern translations on the textual tradition upon which it is based. And most people, most scholars, if you want to use that term, most scholars regard the textual tradition that is the basis for the ESV, the NIV, the NLT as being better, superior. I, I think things should be judged on a case-by-case basis. So if we were going to judge it on a case-by-case basis, we would simply dig into the Greek resources and commentaries and see which has a better rendering, which has a better reading uh, in the commentaries. Sometimes it's the textual tradition, I think, that backs up the New King James and the King James for that matter. Other times it's a textual tradition that backs up the ESV and the NIV. The differences are usually very small, just as what you're pointing out here, the difference between net and nets. Admittedly, very small differences. Insignificant differences. But Jennifer, all I can say is without digging into it, off the cuff, I can say, 
you, you would just look at the textual tradition that supports this reading and the textual tradition that supports this reading and compare them and just kind of see which is stronger and which is better. That, that would be the general way that I would explain it. And again, thank you for those uh, condolences and from you, Joanne, as well, and everyone else. I appreciate that. Last question, uh, again, from Richard. It's not a question, just a statement of condolences. Well, I appreciate that. So look, everybody, I am grateful for your prayers. I, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't intending on bringing this up. Uh, even though it is very fresh with us, it was just a few days ago that my father passed. I had not intended, I, I wasn't against bringing up the passing of my father. Uh, but when I got the question about why that particular bobblehead behind me, I just thought, well, I'll share it with you all. Uh, so anyway, I appreciate your prayers, your condolences for me and for my family. We are doing well, but obviously it's something that uh, we need to just kind of deal with and work through under God's goodness and grace. God permitting, next Thursday, I'll be back with you at the same time. I hope, I trust that our stream went out a little bit better this time. Of course, we're going to be looking at all the data and seeing if some of the improvements that we've made, new equipment, you know, just redoing a few things along the way has helped. Uh, I certainly hope so, and I hope you can join us next week as we come back together. God bless you. I hope you can find some help from uh, the online commentary that I have at EnduringWord.com. But also, I have a lot of video resources on the YouTube channel. If you're watching this on YouTube, just go to the YouTube channel. If you're watching this on Facebook, there's tons of resources on YouTube, as well our TWR360 on. So I want to give a shout out to you and thank you. And just if you want to see the video resources we have, go to our YouTube channel. God bless you. Thank you for joining us and hope to see you again next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.